1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Pub- Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Timothy Kaufman Osborne, the author of The Autocratic Academy Reenvisioning Rule in American Universities. In The Autocratic Academy, Kaufman Osborne argues that critics of contemporary U.S. higher education often point to the academy's corporatization as one of its defining maladies. He points out, however, that American colleges and universities have always been organized as corporations in which the power to rule is legally vested in and monopolized by anti-democratic governing boards. This institutional form, Kaufman Osborne contends, is antithetical to the free inquiry that defines the purpose of higher education. Tracing the history of the American Academy from the founding of Harvard through the Supreme Court's Dartmouth versus Woodward ruling and into the 21st century, Kaufman Osborne shows how the university's autocratic legal constitution is now yoked to its representation on the model of private property. Explaining why appeals to the cause of shared governance cannot succeed in wresting power from the academy's autocrats, Kaufman Osborne argues that American universities must now be reincorporated in accordance with the principles of democratic republicanism. Only then can the Academy's members hold accountable those chosen to govern and collectively determine the disposition of higher education's unique public goods. Timothy Kaufman Osborne is Baker Ferguson Professor of Politics and Leadership Emeritus at Whitman College and the author of From Noose to Needle, Capital Punishment and the Late Liberal State and Creatures of Prometheus, Gender and the Politics of Technology. Timothy Kaufman Osborne, welcome to the Noonbeck's Network.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. And I think you offered just a, such a splendid overview of the book that you've probably made this interview uh, unnecessary.
2: Not at all. There's you. a lot to get into in your book. Because first, I just want to take you say, thank you for taking the time to talk today. And really for uh, what I consider to be uh, both a very important uh, argument and a very provocative one. Um, So you begin your book with the American Association of University Professors' statement on the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on governance. But the book ranges far beyond this. So my question is what made you want to take up this project?
1: It really emerges out of my academic career at Whitman College. And and let me explain uh, a bit. Um, so during the first quarter century or so of my employment at Whitman, maybe naively, I, I construed my relationship to the college first and foremost in terms of my work with other faculty members. And, and it seemed to me that no matter what, power differentials distinguished us, whether based in tenure track status, rank, race, gender, whatever. Um, I nonetheless imagine my relationship to fellow faculty members and hence my situation within the college principally uh, in what we might call horizontal as opposed to vertical terms. And I think it's that conception that we presuppose when we refer to one another as colleagues and when we we regard ourselves as peers within a community of professional educators. Um, And within that community, however idealized it may be, we interact in principle as equals rather than as super and subordinates. And that understanding was disrupted for me in 2016 when, much to my surprise, I was point- appointed provost and dean of faculty at Whitman. And it was during the six years that I served in that position that I came to think of Whitman in fundamentally different terms. And, and those terms, you can read off any standard college, or university organizational chart. Um, Those charts are typically shaped in the form of something akin to a pyramid. At the pyramid's apex, you're going to find the board of trustees. Beneath that apex, you're going to find the board's principal executive appointee, the president. Below the president, you're going to see the senior administrative officers who have been appointed by the president. And underneath those officers, we'll see the staff members who basically discharge the orders issued by those above them within this bureaucratically structured, organized structure. So that that vertical distribution of power is of course very different from the horizontal relations of power in which I participated when I thought of myself first and foremost as an equal within a community of colleges, uh, colleagues rather. And that disjunction, that kind of jarring experience uh led me to ask a simple question why is it that Whitman College like virtually all other institutions of post secondary education in the United States private as well as public why do they all vest ultimate legal authority to rule in what are conventionally referred to as external lay governing boards and the, the term external here refers to the fact that members of governing boards are not employees of the college and the term lay suggests that one need not be a professional educator in order to qualify for appointment to those boards um if one were to put the point less generously one might say that american colleges and universities are ruled by amateur volunteers. Um, So how, I wondered, had this peculiar structure of rule come to prevail within US colleges and universities? And, And more importantly, why should we be convinced that this organization of power is the best way to govern our college if our aim is to advance the unique purposes of higher education And then finally, if there's good reason to think that this organization of power has not served the academy well, might it be possible to imagine other and perhaps better ways of governing America's colleges and universities? And and those are the questions that, again, emerged out of that very practical experience um, that eventually prompted me to to write the book.
2: I imagine there's a whole lot of... um questions that i could ask about your personal experience and as being a provost uh, that that would be generative of an interesting discussion but for right now let's not uh, go there so. yeah I could say. so i want to uh turn our attention uh and again we're going to return to some more contemporary examples of some of this kind of thing later on uh, but in your first chapter you talk about two examples of autocracy at uh, texas southern university and the university of tulsa Tell us a little about these two cases and and how they demonstrate what you mean by the autocratic academy.
1: Okay. Um and what, what I'd like to do in it's quite true that in chapter one, I focus on um University of Tulsa in Southern Texas. Um, but I think I can illustrate the my characterization of governance in U.S. colleges and universities a little better by sticking with Whitman for for the moment. Although I think you can readily extrapolate what I say about Whitman to virtually any other college and university um, in the United States. So so um, here's what happened at Whitman uh, in 1883. The Legislative Assembly of the Territory of Washington issued a charter that charter created a corporation and the the legally prescribed purpose of that uh, corporation is to instruct, quote, both sexes in literature, science, and art. The, The name given to that corporation is the Board of Trustees of Whitman College, and the membership of that corporation consists of the nine persons named in the charter as well as, quote, unquote, their successors. To this incorporated entity, the Board of Trustees of Whitman College, the territorial legislature then granted the usual panoply of powers that are granted to corporations, the power to buy, sell, and possess property, the power to enter into contracts, to sue and be sued in courts of law, and in this case, to to award degrees to, to its students. More important for my purposes, the 1883 charter issued by the Legislative Assembly also states this, and I'm going to quote, Um, And you could find language to this effect, again, in virtually any charter or enabling statute for any college in the U.S. But here's the way it reads in the 1883 Whitman um, Charter. Quote, the Board of Trustees shall have the power to make and put in force such bylaws and regulations as shall from time to time be deemed necessary for the government of said corporation, unquote. In other words, at Whitman, again, as is true of U.S. colleges and universities more generally, the power to rule is concentrated within its board of trustees. Now, it's true that the Board of Trustees may elect to delegate certain of its powers to others, for example, to the college's president, but by its very nature, delegated power is revocable power. And so in the last analysis, the power to rule remains monopolized by those at the apex of this pyramid, of this hierarchical institutional formation. Um, so that's one dimension of the uh, what I call the autocratic constitution of the American Academy, Um, There's a second dimension that I think is worth pointing out, and it's interesting to see how the two dimensions interact with one another. Um, To see the second dimension, recall that the sole members of the corporation created by the 1883 charter are its trustees, who then are not members of this corporation. And the answer is seldom noted, but I think quite obvious, whether president, dean, provost, instructor... Or custodian, those who are not this corporation's members are those who perform work in return for a wage and in accordance with the terms specified by the labor contracts we sign. Um, those who fill these positions are this corporation's compensated employees. And in a in a capitalist economy, the default form of employment is that embodied in at-will contracts. And by definition, At will contracts are those that authorize employers, in this case, the board or that power may be delegated to the president. But in this case, the board to terminate those who it hires for any reason or for no reason whatsoever. So long as that termination is not for an illegal reason. Um, Yes, it's true that an ever diminishing number of faculty members may be partly immunized from the harsh realities of at-will employment via the institution of tenure. But as we're now seeing in Florida and North Carolina, Texas and elsewhere, the very existence of tenure is itself a revocable and precarious protection. And those who are not so protected are those whose employment we rightly label contingent.
0: Um,
1: that's a very telling word in, in my view. In any event, because those who are the Academy's employees are not members of the corporation that hires them, they have no legally guaranteed title to take part in the college's governance. And that's as true of Whitman's president as it is of the college's buildings and ground staff. Now that's that's not to deny that the president holds far more power than do Whitman's custodians, for example. But the fact remains that all are employees of an incorporated body politic, the board, whose members rule over these subjects as what I'm somewhat contentiously gonna call so many hired hands. So what what I've just described to, to summarize is an autocratic corporation in which the power to rule is vested in a small group that is neither selected by nor accountable to those over whom it rules. And in my view, we should find that constitution of power no more defensible than did the American colonists when they took up arms against the British monarchy. Uh, the autocratic constitution of the American Academy is, in my view, an un-American aberration that has no legitimate place within a political order predicated on the principles of democratic republicanism. And that that's the basic argument of, of chapter one, which I think then leads well, I hope, into chapters two and three. But, but I'll stop there for a moment.
2: Yeah. And, and you cite um, Elizabeth Anderson's work on private governments in part of your critique of at will employment. Um, and, and it's interesting. I had her on a podcast about a year ago and, and we talked about some of these issues of exactly what you just said, that essentially, you know, the 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 legal construct of at will employment basically means that you give up your democratic citizenship rights almost as soon as you walk into your place of employment.
1: I I agree completely and I I, uh, am deeply indebted to Elizabeth. I've never met Elizabeth. I hope to do so at some point in time. I think her work is really insightful in terms of um, uh, examining and exposing the power relations that are implicit within um, capitalist labor contracts. So Mm -hmm. I I owe her a great deal.
2: So you take particular exception, and, and it's a, an exception that I absolutely agree with uh, with you about, to the term corporatization. Um, as someone, I think, described it, uh, the, that entire concept of the corporatization of the academy, how do you corporatize an already corporate um, organization? Um, and the word serves very much as a linchpin in your argument. So let's discuss why this is a particularly ill-considered word as a critique of the Contemporary University.
1: Sure. Um, And just to get started, I I worry that the term corporatization, I've been in enough faculty meetings um, to to hear that, that term bandied about all too often. I worry that it's become a kind of empty rhetorical epithet. That um that indicates or faculty members' objections to whatever senior administrators or board of trustees have done, and it becomes a catch-all t- term that I think obscures more than than it illuminates, and also this charge. Um, appears to suggest that over the course of the past few decades, higher education has come to be run on the model of a for-profit corporation. And that's what has led to its corporate corruption. Um, That claim, I think, is misleading, however, because as you just indicated, it fails to acknowledge that U.S. colleges and universities have always been legally constituted as autocratically organized corporations. So, Given what I just said, you might expect that I would argue for a repudiation of the organization of American colleges as corporations, but I don't, in fact, make that argument. Instead, I suggest that we consider organizing the American Academy as a different kind of corporation. And and to make that argument, and this is really what I try to do in Chapter 2, I think I first have to dislodge our received understanding of what a corporation is. Um, today, when we hear the term corporation, I don't know about you. This is certainly true for me and most of my my, my uh, peers. But when we hear the term corporation, I think we're most likely to think of its contemporary for-profit manifestations. And if we're asked to identify specific examples, we're gonna point to behemoths like Facebook, ExxonMobil, Walmart, and the like. And and I I think our citation of those examples suggests that we now think of the corporation as a creature of private actors engaged in the pursuit of self-interested gain Within a free market economy predicated on private property and contractual agreements, I think that's what we have now effectively come to believe. That's what a corporation is. In fact, however, and and here um, I'm going to bleed into chapter three uh, a little bit. Um, the corporation, uh, the institutional form that we call a corporation, has assumed many different forms since something akin to it was first imagined in uh ancient Roman law and then perfected in in medieval Europe most municipalities in the United States today for example are incorporated entities and and that example alone should suffice to remind us that the for-profit variant is a historically contingent artifact that in my view should not be permitted to monopolize our understanding of what a corporation is The alternative kind of corporation that especially interests me is what a friend of mine, David Sibley, has called the member um, corporation. And this is what I touch on in in Chapter 3, which is the last chapter in Part 1 of the book. Um, Member corporations, the 18th century English jurist William Blackstone once explained, are built on the model of what Blackstone called little republics. And unlike its autocratic variant, the power of rule within member corporations is organized on the basis of two fundamental principles, at least two fundamental principles, or I'll just mention two. One, members establish rules for their collective self-governance by means of debate, followed by voting. And two, rule is exercised either immediately by those that corporation's members or alternatively by elected officers chosen by a majority in accordance with the egalitarian principle of one member, one vote. And to to belabor the obvious, the member corporation in its organization of power departs radically from its autocratic um, counterpart, the the form that monopolizes the power of rule over those who are subjects in the form of salaried or or waged employees. corporation, I commend, is instead predicated on the principle of collective self-governance. The the rules its members observe are those they freely create, and that rule is exercised by those who remain accountable to the ruled because they're selected by and hence removable by those same members. Um, the, The relations among parties those parties, moreover, are not the relations between employers and employees, bosses and hired hands. Instead, at least in principle, all share a common status as members who ideally embrace a commitment to protect and practice the common good that is is higher education. So that, that's pretty much what I do try to do in chapters two and three, which rounds out part one of the book.
2: Yeah. So it, it just this is a this is I I don't know if this is tangential or not, but maybe by way of an illustration, uh, because this was a hard thing for me to wrap my head around, because, as you said, we're so accustomed to thinking about corporations in those terms. I mean, our hero would be General Motors or Chrysler or or Ford, right, that is sort of the exemplars right. of of the property corporation. And I was thinking trying to wrap my head around this idea of what a member corporation might look like. I mean, aside from a municipality and and the, the thing that popped into my head were homeowners associations, mm-hmm. right, where, you know, my neighbor down the street is the president. And at some point, I don't like the way they're doing their job. And so on the principle of one member, and one vote, I get to move to vote that person out and and we're sort of you know there's a common kind of you know we got to get the sidewalks shoveled in the winter and you know and various other tasks accomplished for for the group of homes in the association is that that's kind of what we're thinking about right or am i i,
1: I do think so um and again to emphasize the political character of what I'm calling member corporations, I'd return to the example of uh, most incorporated municipalities. They are effectively constituted as member corporations where uh, in Walla Walla, we elect our members of the city council. And if we don't much care for the jobs that they are doing, we we oust them and replace them with other persons. And at least in principle, although we do our uh, we establish our municipal ordinances through the city council. We, in effect, are the authors of those municipal ordinances insofar as we are electing and holding accountable the elected representatives who are fashioning those municipalities. So, again, the incorporated municipality, I think, represents a, a good example of a member corporation. And I would also add, uh, and this sort of anticipates where we may end up later, is that um the idea of constituting a college or university as a member corporation is um not an alien idea. It is a thread that that um, and maybe we'll get to this in a minute, that I think is run throughout the history of uh of uh, American higher education. Um, so maybe I'll stop there. Yeah,
2: yeah, because because that's exactly where I want to go next, Um, because in section two of your book, you discuss the sort of the movement from from how we got from the member corporation uh, within colleges and universities to to the property corporation. Um, and, And it involved a number of court cases involving William and Mary. Uh, involving Harvard and, and sort of culminating in the decision by Supreme Court Justice John Marshall. Um, so I, I'd like to ask you to read from your book at this point, uh, page 116. There, there's a, a last full paragraph there that I think kind of nicely demonstrates some of what's going on in, in this discussion.
1: Sure. Um, last full paragraph reads as follows. And, and now if I if i don't like the way I've written this paragraph, I'm gonna have to go back and rewrite it. One never knows. So here's the way it's written at present. Um, to illustrate um, this corporation's right to enact and enforce bylaws applicable to all within its jurisdiction is a power conferred on it by the state via the charter. And we can talk about that via a uh, discussion of Dartmouth specifically or William and Mary and Harvard. Um, The delegation of this power does not create a principal agent relationship that is one that renders the latter nothing but an instrument for accomplishing the will of the former. The academy, in other words, is not simply an instrument for accomplishing state purposes. I'm sorry to interrupt my own reading, but this becomes highly relevant when we think about what's been going on in Florida and other red states in the last couple of years. Back to the quotation. Instead, the Qua Corporation is granted considerable discretionary authority to determine how best to accomplish its public purpose, and that autonomy is encapsulated in its right to exercise self-rule. The incorporated college, therefore, is not entirely autonomous, but neither is it a mere administrative unit of the state as Ron DeSantis is now trying to render institutions of public higher education in Florida mere administrative units of the state. Um, I'll stop interrupting myself to finish off the paragraph. Dartmouth is a legal dependent insofar as it's ultimately a creature of the state, but at the same time, it's operationally independent of that state in its possession and exercise of the powers that constitute it as a corporation.
2: Yeah I think that's such an important a uh, distinction that you, that we that we're making here. So let's talk about a little how we got there from from uh from the corporation as a member corporation to its eventually tra- its transformation to the the property corporation.
1: Sure. Um so it was um the member corporation the idea the principles of the member corporation that informed Cambridge, as well as Oxford universities in England uh, during the colonial era, uh, during the era when the earliest colonial colleges were founded in America. As I tried to show in in part two of the book, it was also that type, right, the member corporation, um, as illustrated by Cambridge and Oxford, is also that type that informed many of the conflicts in colonial America about how the earliest colleges were to structure the constitution of rule, most notably at Harvard and William and Mary. Uh, There, the faculty who sought to challenge those who were pressing for an autocratic constitution of rule Effectively appealed to the basic principles of the member corporation. They didn't necessarily use that language, but I think it's easy to read in those terms. And in doing so, they were imagining the academy. Uh, again, citing the example of Cambridge and Oxford, they were imagining the academy as a self-governing entity that possesses the authority to fashion and adopt the laws that will govern its members. And furthermore, that has the authority to elect and, and accordingly to remove the officers who administer those laws. And And you see that just to provide, um, no, I don't wanna go into all the detail about my chapter on Harvard or William and Mary, although I find it fascinating. But um, we see that at Harvard, uh, this process at Harvard and the conflict between what was called the president and fellows of Harvard College on the one hand and the board of overseer, what was called the board of overseers on the other. Um, This oversimplifies a complex history, but as originally chartered rule over harvard's internal affairs was granted to that entity called the president and fellows of harvard college which was essentially a member corporation certain limited governance responsibilities however were granted to the board of overseers whose members were political essentially political or ministerial appointees and as such they acted as something akin to today's external lake governing boards. And over the course of Harvard's first two centuries, heated, very heated conflict occasionally erupted between these two bodies. And as I show those who sought to resist the board of overseers encroachments, again, basically did so by appealing to the principles of member corporations. And, and much the same occurred at William and Mary as the so-called Board of Visitors, rather than the Board of Overseers, as the so-called Board of Visitors sought to aggregate power at the expense of what was called the president and masters of the college, which was also a self-governing member corporation. And the the victory of the autocratic corporation over its member corporate counterpart was effectively signaled I think when Yale university was chartered in 1745 and Yale's charter effectively rendered um, the conflicts at Harvard and William and Mary impossible. And it did so by vesting all governance authority in a single monocratic board. And that's the progenitor that comes to define the autocratic constitution of rule. We're all too familiar with today. Um, So we, we, um, alluded to the, the Dartmouth decision, and maybe this is a good time to say a word about that because it, it's pivotal to at least one part of the argument I'm trying to make in the book. So in the final chapter, part two, I, I try to show how this autocratic of rule took on a decidedly what I'm going to call a capitalist twist in 1819 when the U.S. Supreme Court decided Dartmouth uh, College v. Woodward. Um, That case emerged out of a dispute between Dartmouth College and the New Hampshire State Legislature when in 1816, the legislature amended the charter that had been granted to the college by the colonial governor in 1769. And perhaps most significantly, what the legislature did was to expand the size of Dartmouth's Board of Trustees. The board refused to accept this change, filed suit against the state legislature. The New Hampshire State Supreme Court ruled in favor of the state legislature. And so not surprisingly, Dartmouth's uh, trustees appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which eventually in 1819 ruled in their favor. So what's important to me about the Dartmouth case is the argument advanced by the Supreme Court to vindicate Dartmouth's trustees. Um, In a nutshell, as I read the case, Chief Justice Marshall misinterpreted the college's charter as a contract. Those, I think, are two very different legal devices, but he effectively conflated the two, collapsed the charter into a contract, and then cited the provision in the U.S. Constitution that prohibits states from impairing contracts. Now, for my purposes, what's important here is that the Supreme Court citation of the U.S. Constitution's contracts clause effectively construes Dartmouth College as something akin to a form of private property that's effectively owned by the college's board of trustees and hence protected against legislative infringement. Um, Thus, do governing boards come to be understood on the model of private property owners rather than as stewards of the unique collective good that is higher education. Notice how that in turn consolidated the representation of Dartmouth's faculty as at will employees, because because they were now the employees not they were not members of the corporation that is dartmouth college rather they are the college's employees and as such they are in principle excluded from any title to participate in governing the college which is we've already seen is now monopolized by dartmouth's board and this understanding by the way is perfectly illustrated in my view by a sign that once adorned a fence on the perimeter of the UC Berkeley campus, not long ago. I don't think it's there currently, but I know it was there not too long ago. And and it's a sign whose text appears in part on the in the background of my book's cover. And that sign reads in part as follows, and I and I give you this text because I think it illustrates the effect of Dartmouth, the Dartmouth decision. Here's what the sign said: Quote, property of the Regents of the University of California, permission to enter or to pass over is revocable at any time. I I don't think I need to elaborate the sense of that that sign in great detail to make my point.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: No, yeah, it's a great illustration of, of the point. Um, and again, this is this is such a fascinating discussion. These this set of chapters on on the early history, um, as you point out, it's it's hard to find heroes and villains, and and people are acting on a variety of self interested motivations. But the the upshot is, as you describe it, um, so I'm going to stumble probably a little over this next term that I want to talk about. Uh, tell us a little bit about Psychostenia universat, universat- <laughs> I hope I did just yeah. that. Uh, and, and again, you know, so much of this is so interesting because, you know, regardless of the problems with the with the, the term corporatization, that whole critique of the university that kind of clusters around that term i kind of feel like we're reinventing the wheel based on on what uh, what i'm what i read
1: and the professor's literature of
2: protest here
1: yeah okay me, um i wish i had invented the term that neither of us would be able to pronounce terribly well it's like it's <laughs> universitatis. um but it is an invention of one of the contributors to what um, uh, comes to be known as the professor's literature protest. And, and let me say a few words about that. And this is uh, the first chapter of part three of the book. And, and in part three, I try to do two things. First, I, I try to show that around the, 20th, the turn of the 20th century, especially as the earliest research universities were beginning to dominate the landscape of American higher education, there was a surprising resurgence of arguments on behalf of a reconstitution of the academy in the form of a Republican member corporation. And that resurgence was spear, or the argument on behalf of that resurgence was spearheaded by a now mostly forgotten group of faculty who wrote multiple essays and books that collectively came to be known as the professor's literature of protest. And, And what that literature Especially protested was the growing influence of industrial tycoons over the university's affairs, whether by sitting on their governing boards or via the financial leverage they exercised in their their capacity as donors. And in response, many authors who contributed to the professor's literature protest argued on behalf of a radical reconstitution of the academy in the form of a self-governing republic. And they argued that the purpose of the academy, its commitment to free inquiry, will never be safe until that reconstitution is adopted. Um, now, here's an irony that I that I try to unfold in the second chapter of Part Three: the contributors to the professors' literature protest were ultimately defeated, and here's the I- irony. In my view, they were defeated by none other than the American Association of University Professors. Um, Since its inception in 1915, the AUP has essentially accepted as a given Constitution of the American uh, Academy in the form of an autocratic corporation. Rather than calling for the Academy's reconstitution as a member corporation, the AUP has appealed to the now famous concept of shared governance. The appeal to shared governance, in my view, represents a capitulation rather than a principle that we should celebrate and employ. Um, Shared governance seeks to secure for faculty some measure of power within a legal form, the autocratic constitution, that's predicated on a denial of their right to participate in ruling the Academy's affairs. And and this harsh truth, I believe, was dramatically illustrated during the pandemic as governing boards throughout the United States seized upon that crisis as an opportunity to affirm their autocratic powers by eliminating entire academic programs, by terminating large numbers of faculty and staff, by gutting employment benefits, etc. Now, here, before I alienate all my friends at at the AUP, of which I am a card carrying member, Uh, I do want to acknowledge and celebrate the fact that the AUP has done absolutely vital work in defending the cause of academic freedom, which is the condition without which the Academy can't achieve its fundamental mission. That said, in my view, and I think this is the view of the the contributors to the professor's literature protest as well, in my view, academic freedom will forever be jeopardized so long as its practice is situated within the context of an autocratic structure of power organized in accordance with bureaucratic chains of command and exploitative uh, capitalist employment contracts
2: yeah i i again i am also uh, a card-carrying member i'm a um... Uh, we're a collective bargaining chapter here at Oakland of the AAUP. Now AAU AAUP yeah, yeah, yeah. teachers, um, and I'm a I'm the former president of our chapter, so um, I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, I mean, the, you know, I love the institution for a lot of the things that it does, but uh, that doesn't mean that it's immune from criticism. Yeah. Um, and and I've often this is, I don't know if this is a the right time to talk about this, but the I was elected president. Uh, a few years ago, and, and again, you know, it's sort of that that um, uh, democratic process, right? I mean, a group of people got together and they cast a ballot uh, for me to represent them. Yeah. Um, oddly, we were then inaugurating a new president of the university, mm-hmm. was appointed to that position by an anti-democratic board of trustees, right? appointees here of our of our governor. And it struck me, I I sat down with a meeting for her, like when we were both starting those our respective roles. And I thought, you know, it's odd in this conversation that I have, you know, in an ostensibly democratic society, a kind of legitimacy to my role, but really no power. Yeah. Uh, and, And she has a lot of power, right, relatively speaking, but not the same sense of legitimacy, right? No one chose her except for, you know, a small coterie of people who didn't really have any relationship to the institution. And I I think this notion of, you know, your critique of of shared governance, I think, sort of points to the oddity of that relationship for me.
1: No, I think the, the in the, I hesitate to go backwards and I'll just do this for a second. But in the prologue to the book, um, I try to illustrate, I think exactly what you're saying by pointing to a um, paradox or a puzzle or a conundrum experienced by the AUP. And in 2021, the AUP issued a very powerful report titled, um, I think it was titled uh, COVID-19 Academic Governance. It um, pointed to uh, major violations of the principles of shared governance at eight different colleges and universities. Uh, it then went on to say, uh, in all italics, as I recall that the, uh, I've got the quotation somewhere here the COVID 19 pandemic has presented the most serious challenges to academic governance in the last 50 years. That's from the report. And the report went on to say that it really worried the, the authors of the report worried that rule by unilateral fiat was becoming the conventional mode of rule within the academy and was acquiring an unfortunate veneer of of legitimacy. Uh, so how so the AUP clearly recognizes a crisis of shared governance. How does it then respond to that crisis at the tail end of that report? And here I've got another quotation Um, I think the AUP at the end of that report offers what I'm going to call a plea in the form of a platitude. And what it says, I'm quoting, Governing boards, administrations, and faculties must make a conscious, concerted, and sustained effort to ensure that all parties are conversant with and cultivate respect for the norms of shared governance. Unquote. Here, the AUP urges the very trustees and senior administrators who have demonstrated their penchant for ruling by high-handed edict, the AUP is in effect urging them to concede the error of their ways and affirm unswavering allegiance, unwavering, uh, wavering allegiance to the norms that they have been undermining for decades. And, and I think that is a, as a, as an acute indication of the ultimate failure of the appeal to shared governance and an invitation to think more radically about a possible reconstitution of the 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 governance of America's colleges and universities, which of course is what I'm trying to do in the book.
2: Yeah. Again, at that first meeting I had with our president, I, I all I could do was hand her a copy, uh, the abbreviated copy of the Red Book and say, here, this is what we believe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there really, wasn't, really wasn't much else to do. May
1: have uh, gone unread. <laughs> I suspect.
2: I suspect. So as you come to the contemporary era, uh, you identify a taxonomy of institutional types. Uh, can you tell us a little about these four institutional types and and how they sort of the about the very messy realities of the failure of this what, what I think is a fairly familiar taxonomy to rest with actually existing universities
1: yeah um i mean if um i wish i had my my um i'm not very good at doing two by two charts but i wish i had it available to me but basically the the, i think the way we conventionally classify leaving aside the carnegie classification system my classification suggests that this two by two table divides institutions into public or private and for-profit and Nonprofit, and you can have a public nonprofit institution and a private nonprofit institution. What you can't have is a public for-profit institution. Um, that I think is the way we conventionally think about institutions of higher education today. I think it is now grossly inadequate as a way of thinking. Of what's happening to um, U.S. institutions, U.S. Uh, colleges and universities? as the academy becomes ever more fully embedded within what i call a neoliberal political economy and and that's what i try to do in part view four of the book um in my view the capacity of american colleges and universities to nurture something that's truly worthy of the name education is rapidly diminishing in the Blame for that, I think, rests chiefly with the autocratic boards that rule the academy, as well as the senior administrators doing their their bidding. Um, More specifically, um, I think today the distinction between higher education and workforce training is in danger of complete collapse. I also think the ascendancy of what's typically called academic capitalism signifies the wholesale transformation of the fruits of academic research into commodities that are then bought and sold within capitalist markets. And when this process is complete, right, the transformation of the collapse of the distinction between higher education workforce training, the conversion of the academy's fruits into commodities, when that process is complete, I think the... Academy will no longer cultivate practice, forms of practice that are distinguishable from whatever goes on within the corporate universities create, and that's what they call them, the corporate universities created by Boeing, Apple, Motorola, Walt Disney, Ron DeSantis' favorite corporation, uh, Google, JP Morgan, and so on and so forth. So um, I, I close part fourth depressing analysis of contemporary U.S. higher education by suggesting that the Academy's ever more thorough subordination to the imperatives of capital accumulation is generating a a surprising effect. And and you had mentioned this in an email to me, so I'm going to take the liberty to, to mention it here. The surprising effect of the incorporation of the academy within a neoliberal political economy is what I call the Humpty Dumpty effect. Um, as we've seen, as presently constituted, academic governing boards are invested with broad powers, including the power to set the rules by which the academy shall be governed. And their monopolization of those powers is the condition of their status as autocrats but but here's the twist I think as governing boards and the presidents they appoint oversee the Academy's more complete envelopment within a neoliberal capitalist economy I think they're effectively creating the conditions of their own disempowerment and this I find a a rather delicious notion uh, for certain obvious reasons. Um, To illustrate my argument, I I could cite a slew of examples, but let me just offer uh, the the, uh, example of the enormous amounts of institutional debt that are now being taken on by many colleges and universities. That debt renders governing boards subject to the claims of their creditors. Many debt contracts, for example, Specify that the foremost right when a college enters into a, a debt arrangement with the issuer of a municipal bond or other bonds, those debt contracts often make quite clear that the foremost financial obligation of colleges and universities, legally speaking, is to pay the principal and interest on their debts. And that obligation, these agreements go on to say, takes precedence over all other financial commitments, including the provision of financial aid to students, the compensation of faculty and staff, etc. And to the extent that that's so, the capacity of governing boards to exercise the legal powers formally invested in them is significantly um, compromised. We, We see a similar phenomenon at work when we look at the reports that are issued by Um, the ratings agencies that assess the credit worthiness of colleges and universities. If, if you look carefully at the reports issued by Moody's, for example, and I don't recommend this as it's good bedtime reading because it'll put you to sleep. But if you look carefully at the reports issued by Moody's, you'll see that Moody's is now effectively usurping the governance capacities of academic boards. What that, Ratings agencies deem important, the academy must do if it is sustain its borrowing capacity in the future. Because Moody's prizes branding strength, right, the national reputation of a college or university, they must pour money into marketing campaigns because Moody's values, the academy's ability to unilaterally raise tuition public universities have to scramble to secure that authority from state legislatures. Um, Because Moody's considers the university's ability to control labor costs crucial to its creditworthiness, the academy must resist unionization and, of course, seek to lower compensation costs by reducing the number of tenured faculty appointments and hence hiring more contingent instructors because Let's face it, they're cheaper. And this is what I call the Humpty Dumpty effect. Formally, governing boards remain invested with the full panoply of powers specified in the charters or enabling statutes. In fact, their actual ability to exercise those powers is being undermined as they oversee the university's ever more complete incorporation within a neoliberal political economy. Sure, I grant. In the long run, governing boards remain capable of doing great harm. In the long run, however, I think they are finding themselves ever more precariously perched atop the academic institutions they claim to rule. So the the larger argument of my book might be understood as a call to topple these anachronistic relics, from the walls where they are now wobbling quite unsteadily in, in my view. So there's Humpty Dumpty comes to the academy.
2: Yeah. And in this chapter, uh, I just want to point this out. We're, we're talking uh, Oakland university is a former branch campus of Michigan state university.
1: Uh, uh, how interesting. Yeah.
2: So, so this, you know, this chapter resonated with me and not only, as you said, the, 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 the provisions of Moody's ratings, uh, those especially those three things that you mentioned—the the national brand, um, their ability to raise to raise and lower raise obviously tuition, um, and and their uh, labor costs. Right? Next year, I'm going to be the lead negotiator for our contract talks with the university. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that under those conditions, we're really talking about sort of an existential crisis for for the other side, right? Yep,
1: absolutely
2: however that turns out they need to weaken us so so that they have the ability to continue to raise funds on the bond market yes um so the book concludes um with your prescription for reimagining governance in the university um this is an important chapter. so let's talk about your outline for what you're calling the Commonwealth University.
1: okay, so um, what what I've said so far, I, I think basically offers the gist of the book's critical argument um, but I'm not quite done and and here's where uh, my mother makes a cameo appearance in the book, unnamed. Um, were she alive and were she to read the book that advances the argument I've just presented, I know what she would say. She would say something like, well, that's all well and good, dear, but what's your alternative? And, yeah. and so in response, To the haunting voice of my deceased mother, I end the book with an epilogue in which I try to respond to the question she never, unfortunately, had an opportunity to pose, but I have no doubt she would have done so. And in the epilogue, I try to sketch a couple of foundational principles that that should inform Reconstitution of the American Academy in the form of a member corporation. And as you just indicated, to my imaginary creature, I give the name uh, Commonwealth University. And here um, I'm just going to mention one of those principles. And if you want to uh, address any of the others, um, please feel free to ask. Um, but and I think what I'm about to say follows from the, the argument I've advanced so far. So. Within Commonwealth University, constituted as a member corporation, to ensure their accountability, those who hold office within Commonwealth University, whether president, provost, or even trustee, must be subject to election and removal by this body politics members. To check the exercise of arbitrary power, those officers must be bound by what I'm going to call the rule of law and obligated to respect the norms of due process. And perhaps most important, the members of Commonwealth University must adopt a constitution that guarantees the practice of free inquiry. For example, by expressly ensuring the right to dispute all claims to knowledge, because that's the whole idea of free inquiry that informs, that is the mission of the academy but also protects the right to challenge their elected officials without fear of retribution or retaliation. So within Commonwealth University, in short, um, the fiduciary duty to nurture the conditions necessary to education's purpose is no longer vested within an external elite composed of lay persons ill-equipped to understand that purpose. Instead, Within Commonwealth University, this fiduciary duty is effectively democratized, insofar as it is distributed among all who share in the powers of collective self-governance. In some, if the practice of free inquiry is what distinguishes the Academy from other kinds of institutions, that practice, that practice's accomplishment requires the abolition of a constitution of rule that authorizes unaccountable bodies to rule autocratically. And and to close, again, um, these are words spoken to my mother, I suppose. Um, In in closing, I have no doubt that reviews of the book as they appear are going to charge me with hopeless naivete and and perhaps even utopianism. And, And were I to respond, I would first deny this charge, and second, I would embrace it. And let me let me explain. Um, I deny this characterization for for a number of reasons, and let me just mention two very quickly. First, if you look at the non the nonprofit incorporation statutes of any state in the United States, you will see that they all provide for the creation of what I have labeled member corporations. So this legal form is readily, not necessarily easily, but readily available to those who want to transform the autocratic academy into one built on the principles of democratic republicanism. Here's the second reason why I think I'm not guilty of naivete and utopianism. Um, Intimations of the member corporation are already present, albeit in truncated form, distorted form within many colleges and universities. Consider, for example, the existence of faculty senates whose officers are elected by and accountable to their their members. Those bodies, I think, are vestiges of the member corporation and its commitment to the principle of democratic self-governance. And I'm arguing that these vestiges intimate the governance principles that should inform uh, a fundamental reconstitution of the academy. Um, or um, closer to my home to come back to to Whitman College for a moment, uh, the faculty here just recently adopted a process that will enable faculty members to conduct periodic reviews of the president and the provost. That process will render the college's leaders at least partly accountable to those they rule. Whitman's reconstitution as a member corporation would simply carry the principle that informs this new policy to its radical, but I think entirely logical conclusion. So for these reasons, as well as others, I think I can hardly be considered a utopian. Yet, in another way, that's precisely what I am, and proudly so. Um, When I encourage us to consider the Constitution of Commonwealth University, my aim is to invite us the readers of the book to summon a capacity that I fear we sorely lack today and that's our capacity to imagine a future that's fundamentally different than the present we now inhabit And I think we see pinched imaginations on the part of our anxious students preoccupied with securing whatever training will render them employable in a job market that ceaselessly defines what's required to remain employable. I also think we see pinched imaginations on the part of faculty members who too often appear unable to contest their own disempowerment On the basis of anything other than the ultimately counterproductive rhetoric of shared governance. And of course, we see pinched imaginations on the part of trustees who equate fulfillment of their fiduciary duties with navigating the terms of the academies of development within a neoliberal political economy. So if It's utopian to imagine an academy whose members are not subject to autocratic rule because they govern themselves. If it's utopian to imagine an academy in which employees are no longer subject to imperious employers because all are members of a corporate endeavor that has no place for either boss or hired hand. If it's utopian to imagine an academy in which free inquiry is no longer perpetually imperiled by a constitution of power that's antagonistic to its very possibility then i happily plead guilty as charged
2: and with that i'm tempted to just say amen and uh and conclude but um i, I want to ask one last question before before we wrap up so in the relatively short amount of time since your book came out universities have come under increasing attack right we we're, we're seeing even more going on um we've sort of made reference to florida and we've made talked a little bit about texas tell me a little about what you're thinking about those cases
1: yeah um so while i was waiting for the book to appear and and you know it takes forever um because i got antsy and itchy i i published a series of shorter essays that examine recent right-wing efforts to take over higher education in Florida, Ohio, Texas, North Carolina, Idaho, and numerous other red states. And, And I don't think I adequately anticipated these developments in the book. And I think they require that we now think more carefully about the question of the academy's autonomy and the conditions necessary to secure that autonomy. And let me offer just one example to illustrate what I've got in mind. Um, by now, we all know about Florida's so called Stop Woke Act, which essentially banned from the classroom any instruction that might appear to endorse, for example, the principles of critical race theory. Um, at least for now, enforcement of Stop Woke has been enjoined by a federal judge. In this context, I'm interested not in the arguments of those who brought suit against Stop Woke, but rather how the state's attorneys responded. Stop Woke, the state's attorneys declared, requires that, and I'm going to quote state employed teachers may not espouse in the classroom the concepts prohibited by the act while they are on the state clock in exchange for a state paycheck. And the lawyers went on, Florida's lawyers went on to say the in-class instruction offered by state employed educators is pure government speech, not the speech of the educators themselves, unquote. On that construction, just like workers in Florida's Department of Highway Safety and Motor Vehicles, faculty members are basically ministerial underlings who are not allowed to say anything other than what their employer, the state, commands. Um, Florida's public colleges and universities, Florida's attorneys went on to state, are, I quote, but subordinate organs of the state, unquote. So that representation of higher education and and, and uh, faculty is, in my view, antithetical to the very purpose of the academy and specifically its commitment to free inquiry. Accordingly, I think it's vital that we now think very seriously about the institutional conditions necessary to secure the autonomy of the academy. And that's what I'm working on now.
2: So uh, uh... About a year or so ago, I had two guests on the podcast um, who were employed by the University of Texas at Austin. And according to state law, they had to preface their discussion with me by saying that they were speaking as private citizens and not in their role as faculty at the University of Texas at Austin. And what you're talking about is sort of an extension of that principle that reaches into the classroom, um, which is more than a little bit terrifying. where,
1: where I think you know, were this to be fully implemented and we know that faculty members in Florida and other states are now uh, feeling the chilling effect of this legislation and modifying their behavior appropriately, should this be um, um, should this process go to its logical terminus, I think w- there will effectively be no distinction between education and indoctrination. Uh, well, Timothy Kaufman
2: Osborne, thank you for your time today, and and really thank you for this, you know, a fascinating t- uh, book, uh, and and a great discussion. Is there anything you want to leave us with before we wrap
1: up? Yes, one thing, and that's um, thank you so much for inviting me to to participate. Um, it's it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate your your questions and I, I appreciate your careful reading of the book. Um, that is the the highest compliment one can play, pay to an author, I think is is to read a book seriously. So um I consider myself in your debt and and grateful to you. so thank you. well, thank
2: you. Uh, so once again, my guest today has been Timothy Kaufman, Osborne, the author of the Autocratic Academy Reenvisioning Rule in American Universities out from Duke University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you're listening to The New Books Network.